time with Randy, huh? That's what we call it. All right. Good morning, friends. Good to see you. Well done. Last night was tricky on the roads, but as Randy said, we're Wisconsinites. Good morning to those of you online. I'm assuming there's a few more of you than normal, whether it's live or afterwards. I will not joke about your capacity or lack thereof of driving through the snow. I'll just say we love you and we're glad you're here with us. Um, Let me pray real quick. Is that all right? Jesus, there's, um, there's a number of really odd things about our faith traditions. In many ways, there's a lot of odd things about a lot of faith traditions, but, you know, this baptism thing that we dunk people in the water symbolically, this communion thing that we do every week, eat this little bland piece of bread, unleavened bread and some juice, symbolically again. <clears throat> and sometimes I feel like talking one person talking about something over and over again is kind of silly. But when I stand up here and remember all over again that if I could talk about one person for the rest of my life, it's you, Jesus. Because I believe all that we've sang today. believe that your name is powerful, and more than that, I believe that your name is beautiful. Like Grace said, your name is love. I believe that you came to reveal who God is and what God is like. I believe that you came to give us life, and you came to give us abundant, beautiful, rich life that's available for us right here and right now. And so would you just remind us, we are forgetful, just normal human beings who need reminders. So Holy Spirit, come and speak, whether it's through me or however you want to speak. And don't just do that this morning, but would you form and shape our lives in such a way that we remember over and over again. And we are aware of your presence over and over again. Not just one morning a week, not just a couple mornings a month, but that this would be our refrain, this would be our chorus that we go back to over and over again, and it's you and it's the Gospels. So come and teach us. Amen. Well, it's been three weeks, friends, since we've been in our series in the Gospel of John. And it's been even more than that since I've been in the Gospel of John, so I'm excited to get back into it with you. Um, this morning, we've, so we've been in the Gospel of John since about summer, and we've been in the sermon series called The Word. If you are familiar with the Gospel of John at all, you'll remember why that is, why we've called it, because John begins his le- this, this Gospel account, this narrative about who Jesus is, by saying, I want to introduce you to Je- this person named Jesus, but I want to really, before we get into things, you must know who this Jesus was, who this Jesus is, and so he talks about how Jesus is the Word. We sing in the be- what a beautiful name it is. The first verse is, you were the Word that was in the beginning with God, right? The, the, this is taken from John 1. So we are, we've been looking at John's account of Jesus' life, and we're going to get into the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're, we're right smack dab today, right in the middle of the Gospel of John. We've made it halfway. And right now, we are, we're, we're in this epic, epic story today in John 11. Ian, three weeks ago, brought us through John 10, this famous text where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, and he talks about, and he's arguing with the Pharisees. Many of us kind of take that away, but this, the gospel of John, have, has anybody been surprised about how the gospel of John is kind of just this ongoing argument? Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you been paying attention? The gospel of John, I didn't, I I, thought, I saw the Gospel of John as kind of a bunch of um, conversations that Jesus has with people. See, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke, they're the synoptic Gospels. They're very similar. And in, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, you get all these parables. And the, the Gospel of Luke is about the kingdom of God. It's really profound. These teachings, they're amazing. The Gospel of Matthew has this G- unique Jewish perspective. And the Gospel of John, I always saw as this 
full of these conversations, this personal Jesus where he gets to talk to people and we get to, to be a fly on the wall for these conversations. And it really is. There's a lot of that going on. But there's so much arguing between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. It's full of it in the middle of the Gospel of John. We've just gone through this epic section, and now today we come to the middle of the Gospel of John, and what's interesting is today, basically, this story begins the passion narrative. Half of the Gospel of John is Jesus marching towards the cross. And what Jesus does in our text today is the, thing, the spark that is going to have him hanging on the cross in, in, not, in very little time. And so half of John's gospel is moving towards the cross. Every time we're going to be in the gospel of John from here on out, we're going to have the cross in the horizon. John's pointing to the cross. This is how important the cross is to these gospel writers and to these first Christians. We're going to spend more time than usual this year. Lent is right around the corner. We're going to spend more time than usual this year thinking about the cross and the sacrifice of Christ. It's going to be a good time. John is going to lead us right into it this Lent. But this morning we get to this, this one story that is an absolutely epic story. Are there any good Bible students here? Do you, have you been reading along? Does anybody know what story we're about to read today in John 11? Lazarus, good job. We're, gonna, we're, we're, we're diving into the story of Lazarus. I was, we were in Argentina, uh, me and my wife Sarah, and then Schmores right over there. We were in Argentina for a week and a half. I had to speak every day at this camp. It was great, it, it, all sorts of things. But right in the middle of it, I got sick which I've been to Argentina five times. Three out of five times I've gotten sick. My tummy is a little sensitive, apparently. <laughs> My tum-tum needs some help. Um, I woke up at like three in the morning, and if you've been to South America or anywhere else globally, and you've like drank a little bit of the water, you know what I woke up to at three in the morning that, that day. And I thought, I could, there's no way I can preach this morning. So I text the crew, and I'm like, I don't think I can do this today. I'm, there's no way. And eventually, all of a sudden, I was like, you know what? I think I can do this. And I could hear everybody down below having breakfast, and I was like, I'm going to do this. So I got dressed. I come down. I'm not feeling great. And Lucio Gaijo, who was on the screen last week, and he's the lead pastor, I walked down, and he goes, Lazarus. And we all laughed, and he's like, is that not how you say that? <laughs> Lazarus. That, that name means something to us, even in our common American culture, right? We've turned this story into this, this caricature of somebody right, coming back from the dead, and we, we, we laugh about it, but that's how central the story is. Now, the interesting thing about this story here, this Lazarus story, Jesus bringing a person literally back from the dead. The interesting thing, well, there's four gospel accounts. Do you know how many gospel accounts have the story of Lazarus in it? It's not a trick question. Just this one, Jake is on fire today. Just this one, only in the gospel of John do we find the story, this epic story of, the gospel, or of, of Jesus bringing Lazarus back to life. Now, if you think about it, that's weird, right? That's, that's interesting. We have four Gospels that are testifying to this one life that Jesus lived. And they're testifying, trying to point us to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God incarnate. And you would think that something as epic as bringing a person back, back from the dead would be in all four Gospel accounts. Why is that? Now, we don't bring up these questions to, to rattle your faith or to, to get you to doubt the reliability or trustworthiness of the Gospels. I, I, want to, I don't want you guys. I grew up in a church, in the church world, where we didn't, I didn't know hard questions were allowed. Anybody else grew up in a church culture like that? Where if there was something awkward or a little bit fishy or a little bit like it raises your eyebrows a little bit, you literally just avoided it, swept it under the rug, pretended it wasn't there. Well, of course, Lazarus is only in John. Who cares? But then you come across a person who's like, do you realize that that's weird and maybe speaks to the unreliability of this story? 
So I don't want to be that pastor. We don't want to be that church. We around here ask the hard questions because we think God is big enough to deal with these hard questions. And if God isn't, he's not worth serving, right? So here's, there, there's all sorts of reasons that scholars kind of bang around as to why this might be, why this is the only account, the gospel account, where this Lazarus story is. And there's a number of different reasons. We don't have time to go into them here today. I'm just going to tell you, I think, the one most common that biblical scholars believe, and I think that it, it has the most weight to it, and it's very, very practical. If you jump forward to John 12, we're going to be in this, the aftermath of Jesus bringing this person back to life, it's, it, it was like an earthquake happened. Jesus' following gets huge after this happens. People are, people are buzz, the whole area around Judea and Jerusalem is buzzing. Jesus brought this dead dude back to life. Like we saw it with our own eyes. He walked out with the, he looked like a mummy who was, came back to life. That'll get you a following, friend. And that will send shockwaves through the religious world, which is what it did. And we find, if you skip forward in John 12, that Lazarus and his sisters, who they all lived together in this place called Bethany, their lives were, were in danger because of this. The, the religious leaders not only wanted to kill Jesus because of this, they wanted to kill Lazarus. And were making plans to do so. Now, the book of the Gospel of John is the last, we pretty much know this, it's the last gospel that was written close to the end of the first century, probably in the mid-90s. The Gospel of Mark was the first gospel account written, probably in the mid-60s, before the fall of Jerusalem. Probably. The Gospel of Mark has no signs of, 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 of this story of Lazarus, and the Gospels of Matthew and Luke are very, very similar. They borrow a lot from the Gospel of Mark. They call, we call them the synoptic Gospels. They're, there's a lot of symmetry between them. And the Gospel of Mark was probably written in the mid-60s when probably Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were still alive. So many biblical scholars think that Mark didn't put this account of Lazarus being, Jesus raising Lazarus back to, to life. Why? Take a guess. For safety, exactly. It's just a very practical thing. Mark probably wrote his gospel account when Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were still alive, and their lives were probably still in danger because of the story. So many scholars believe the synoptic gospels don't have this story to protect this family. John wrote this after they were dead and gone in the late 90s. It's the last account written. And so now he feels free to tell the story of Jesus bringing this person back to life. There's a lot of reasons why there's these, what we would call inconsistencies in the gospels. It's not just your, your favorite atheist being able to point to things and be like, see, it's all BS. The, 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 the scriptures are this complicated, nuanced, really rich and beautiful, but very intricate library of books that we, that thank God we have scholarship that's been happening for hundreds of years that we get to lean into and figure out what's going on here. And again, we can ask these hard questions because God is faithful, I believe. So I think, well, no, let's not, let me just give you a little bit more context for this story. There are seven signs that Jesus does in the Gospel of John that John points us to. The first one is where? John 2, Jesus turning water into wine. That's the first of seven signs. And so we've gone through all of the se seven, or all first six of the signs. This is the last of the seven signs in the Gospel of John that John wants to tell us about that Jesus performed. Now that's interesting. Seven, the seventh sign is Jesus bringing this person back to life, which seven is the number of what in the Hebrew tradition? Completion, perfection. There's some, some symbolic things going on here. Also, when, when in the Bible do you see God doing something miraculous with the number seven? Creation, day one. You guys are on it today. This is amazing. John, we believe, is, is symbolically using this 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 miraculous bringing back, resurrection story of bringing Lazarus back to life and saying this is the seventh of the signs that Jesus performed, bringing this person back to life and pointing to the beginning of his gospel and then the beginning of the whole, cre the, the whole scriptural narrative saying Jesus is the creator God. John's symbolically pointing to his community. He's not writing this just to like 
hey, the whole world needs to hear this. He's got a community, probably in Ephesus, that's learning about this way of Jesus, and he's trying to point them over and over and over again in these subtle ways to the fact that Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was not just this prophet. Jesus was not just this great religious leader. Jesus was God himself. And he's using, he's pulling out all the stops to show us that. So as we get to this final epic sign that Jesus performs, let's, let's dig in. This is in John 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. We're going to hear about that. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. They send a messenger, and they're basically trying to get Jesus to come to heal this guy, their, their, their brother. They know that there, there, there's some relationship there. When he heard this, Jesus said, this is, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Well, Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you were going back. Jesus answered, are, not the, are, not 12 hours of daylight, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they, see, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks in at night when they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, you will get better. <laughs> Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, guys. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also go so that we may die with him. Now, let's, let's think about this stuff for a little bit. Let me give you some some background, some context. First thing, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, these are people that we know Jesus loved. And not just in this kind of God loves everybody kind of way, because Jesus loves everybody. These are Jesus' people. These are people that Jesus is intimate with. They're the one you love is sick. Matter of fact, some people think that Lazarus actually was the author of the book, the Gospel of John. I don't think so, but I'm not a scholar, so it doesn't really matter. But Jesus is very familiar with his family. And the odd thing is, is that we have this delay. Je Martha sends a messenger to, to Jesus to say, dude, Lazarus is about to die. He's really sick. You need to come and heal him because we know what you can do, Jesus. And Jesus is like, thanks for the word. Thanks for the update. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm good here. Matter of fact, I'm going to chill for two more days. Now, that seems kind of, let's be honest, mean, right? It seems kind of cold, like not something you would do for a friend, just sit back and, and let him die. But obviously, Jesus, we're, we're in on the joke here. See, Jesus has bigger intentions. He, Jesus is about to reveal for all people in this day and age, I am the Messiah. Jesus is going to pull the rabbit out of the hat for once and for all. So Jesus has this ulterior motive. But John is really quick to, to let us know that Jesus was intimate with his family. Let's see here. Good grief. So old. Lord, the one you love is sick. And then John basically in this first, in this, in this, first bit of the story, goes out of his way to let us know Jesus loves this family. Jesus is close and intimate with this family. Jesus loves Lazarus. The reason is, is because John knows, or the, gospel, the author of the Gospel of John knows, that this could kind of trivialize the sickness and trivialize this family and make them actually bring shame to the family by not going to them, by, by waiting for them, by, not, by re rejecting their requests, right? And John wants us to know, the author of the Gospel of John wants us to know it's not like that. Jesus had other plans. He loved this family. And then we get into this, further into the story, and we find the disciples are freaking out because Bethany, right, right here, Bethany's kind of on this hill, and there's this valley, and it's near the Garden of Gethsemane, and you go up the hill, and you're right to Jerusalem and the gates of Jerusalem. So it's really close. If you've been to Jer the, the Holy Land, you would, you would 
kind of recognize this. And what's interesting is that right, the, the narrative right before this, Ian spoke about Jesus being the good shepherd in John 10. At the end of John 10, I don't think you went into this, did you? At the end of John 10, Jesus reappears in Jerusalem. He comes, comes back to the people. He announces that I am the Messiah. I am God, by the way. And the people literally pick up stones because they want to execute him on the spot. This ministry of Jesus has created such a, such a fuss in Jerusalem that literally the people of Jerusalem want to kill Jesus. And John says he slipped out and he escaped. And now they're kind of, the Jesus and the disciples are in hiding. And I'm, I'm guessing that the disciples plan on never bringing Jesus back to Jerusalem. We're done there now. Like everybody wanted to kill you. They were just about to do it. You, you escaped with your life. We are going to go to our friends in Galilee. We are having a ministry everywhere else besides Jerusalem because you being alive is the thing. You are the king. You're the Messiah. You need to be alive in order to be the king and the Messiah. And Jesus has different plans. It's why this, there, John is introducing some irony because he knows the end of the story. And it's the, one of the ironic things. There, we're going to find crowds following Jesus because of this. And the ironic thing is the crowds Jesus isn't interested in them, and they're also really fickle, we're going to find. But then also Thomas. Thomas comes off as this brave one in this narrative, right? He's like, hey, guys, Jesus wants to die. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. Let's go with him and die with him. Like, whoa, Thomas. The guts on this guy is, are very impressive, right? See, but we know the end of the story. We know that... John's being ironic here and showing us these guys were, they were G.I. Joe when it came time, when it came to, to talking about marching to, to the cross with Jesus. But when the, when, when the rubber hit the road, they were nowhere to be found. And Thomas in particular is this guy who, the resurrected Jesus, the, his friends are telling him about it and he's like, I don't buy it. So John begins the story by showing this ironic thing about how fickle the heart of mankind is in this person of Thomas. Then we go on in the story. Let's continue reading. This is in verse 17. On his arrival, so Jesus set off. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. So John is telling us it's about a day's, day's walk away. Less than that, but they say they would count this as a day's journey. And many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my, mother, my brother would not have died. Now, she's got emotions in her voice here. But I, now, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She thinks that this everlasting life that Jesus has to bring is just for the end times. And Jesus said to her, look, girl, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her Mary, sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not, could, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man just, just in John 9, could he not have kept this man from dying, his close friend? Jesus once more was deeply moved. He came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone. They would have these stones there so wild animals wouldn't go in and eat the dead body. Sorry if that's TMI. 
But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus does this a couple of times in the Gospel of John. He starts praying, and he's like, this prayer is just all for you guys. I know the end of the story. I know that you hear me. We, we, we live in communion, but I'm doing this for the sake of these guys here. <coughs> when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. They're the grave clothes. And Jesus said to them, take off those grave clothes and let him go. Now that's a story. Let me just get through a few of these details so we can kind of feel comfortable with the story and be on the same page before I get to the punchline, what I think is the punchline, or what one of many punchlines in the story are. See, because I could preach this two years from now, and I would find a different punchline because that's how beautiful and brilliant the scriptures are. Again, I say this all the time, the scriptures are like this diamond. There's an unlimited amount of facets and beauty to the scriptures that we're going to find over and over again. So we find that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Now, that's, there's a couple of reasons that we, we think that John said this. First of all, to let us know for once and for all, this dude was dead. There's no doubt about it. Lazarus was good and dead. For four days, he's in the grave. Decay is starting to take over. He, it's, it's done. There's no hope of him coming back to life. That's one reason why John wants to let us know, so that we know that John, Jesus really did raise some, someone back to life. Uh, but there's another thing in here that, that is interesting. He's been dead for four days. Now, if you do the math, which many scholars have, you, you take this story, you find Lazarus is sick. Martha sends messenger to Jesus to say, hey, Jesus, Lazarus is really sick. He might die. Can you come and heal him? Then, how long does Jesus wait? Two more days. Good job. You're listening. Two more days, Jesus waits. Then, it says that it's less than two miles away, so that's a day's journey at most. So Jesus waits two days. On that third day, he, he goes, he gets there, and Lazarus is, lo and behold, been dead for four days. So what we find is that probably by the time that messenger got to Jesus to, to tell him, hey, Lazarus is really sick, Lazarus probably died already in the course of that journey. Just in case you were wondering, in case we're wondering, that's callous, Jesus, the guess is Jesus probably already knew Lazarus is dead. And we're going to chill here and wait to make, him, make sure that he's good and dead because I'm going to be glorified by this story. So that, that four days is interesting. Then Martha comes to Jesus and, and, as, as, as their house and home and their area is full of people grieving with them. Now, a couple things about this. That order is wrong. Jesus should have gone directly to the home to grieve and to mourn with Mary and Martha. That's, that's common courtesy. This, their home would have been full of people. See, grieving a death of a, of a person in your community in this ancient Jewish world was basically you were compelled to go grieve with this, with this family. Whether you knew them intimately or not, whether they were close family, we've got a lot to learn from this ancient Jewish culture because, see, the whole community would have come around them, brought food to them, and they would be sitting Shiva, right? Have you heard of this? Have anybody seen, seen the movie, This Is Where I Leave You? Tina Fey, Jason Bateman, anyone? Just a couple? It's a good movie. It's about a family, Jewish family whose father dies and the kids all come and they have all sorts of issues. It's not like that in, in real life. However, this is sitting Shiva. They would have been right in the middle of sitting and grieving. They do nothing else besides just sit there and grieve their loved one. And the whole community comes around them. The whole community is disrupted when they lose a person in their community. We Americans, especially younger Americans, I got to tell you, I go to, I officiate funerals sometimes. I go to funerals. It stuns me how few of us actually show up for a person or a family in grief. This is like hard pastor stuff right here. But sometimes it really literally stuns me how we don't know how to grieve with one another. I've, some of us have recently lost a loved one who's really, it 
sent shockwaves through our world that this 47-year-old woman lost her life recently. And I've got to tell you, the most, possibly the most sacred thing I've ever done in my life was sitting with her husband and just listening to him talk and process about how he just lost the love of his life. It was maybe the most sacred time I've ever had in my life, and I would have missed it if I'd have been like, no, that's too uncomfortable for me. I don't want to deal with it. I had those thoughts. We were driving on the way there, and I had a splitting headache the whole 10-minute ride because I did not want to go, and that's what I do. I get a headache when I have a cry that I need to get, get, get out of me. I don't know if any of you are like that. But then we entered into this home and just heard our friend talk about his, his wife for two hours, and we just listened and sat there and sat there and listened some more until he said, I think I'm out of words right now. When we got back in the car, we embraced and we hugged and me and Sarah got back in the car and she just said, that was one of the most sacred and beautiful things I've ever been around. And see, we miss that in our culture because we're, I don't know if we're scared of death or if it feels awkward for us or we, we, I don't know why. But I feel like us younger people aren't as good at just showing up over and over again. The schmores, I, I'm going to put you on the spot. I wasn't planning on doing it. If there's a funeral within like sniffing distance around our community, the schmores will be there. And I've been personally challenged by that. I need to just show up for people. This ancient culture knew how to grieve with people. They knew how to minister to one another and how to love one another and care for one another. Can we learn from that as a community, as a family, as a church? And not just people from our church, but people who, death is the sacred thing where there's no bigger, better time when you'll feel more loved than when you've, you're in that vulnerable space of losing someone that meant everything to you. Do you know what I'm talking about? All right, I wasn't planning on saying all that, but I'm going to time back in and head back into this message. Now, there's another, so Jesus should have come to, to, to Martha. Why didn't he? Probably because Martha knew that Jesus' life was in danger and that if the community in Jerusalem figured out that Jesus was around, word would spread, Jesus could die. So Martha, being this great friend of Jesus, goes to Jesus before he's even in the village of Bethany. She starts talking to him. Now, this conversation is very interesting. I'm going to get into the particulars of it because this is a conversation that I say at pretty much every funeral I officiate, some of the most beautiful words of Jesus. But the, what Jesus says to her is he, he, Jesus reveals himself in this stunningly clear way. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the Messiah. I am God is what he's telling her. Now, this is one of four times in the Gospel of John, one of four times when Jesus privately gives this really rich disclosure of his messianic identity, of who, of who he really is. Four times. First one is in, does anybody know the first one? This would require some real good attention. John 4, the Samaritan woman, right? Jesus is talking to her, and he just tells this marginalized Samaritan woman I'm, I'm, the, I'm the Messiah. I'm the guy that you've been waiting for this whole time. That's the first time. Second time is here with Martha in, in this conversation outside of Bethany. Third time is, is with Peter. Fourth time is with who? Outside the tomb. Outside of G the tomb, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who does he engage with? Mary Magdalene. Now, this is interesting. This is one of those things that you could blow right by and not realize how subversive and radical the gospel actually is. See, because three out of the four times that Jesus gives this messianic, reveals his messianic identity in these private conversations with the person, three out of the four times are with whom? Women! And now that might not be shocking to us, but in this ancient Jewish patriarchal world, that is absolutely bonkers. You'd never do it. See, because women in this culture, if you've been around Bruce City, you've, you've heard this over and over again. Women in this culture were, were so marginalized, you have no idea. Women are still marginalized in many ways and certainly in many areas of the world. 
But in this culture, it was extreme patriarchy from the beginning to the end. And so much so that a woman couldn't even testify in court because they weren't seen as, as human beings, as reliable people who could testify to what something that happened. Even if they saw it with their own stinking eyes, they couldn't go to court and testify about it because they weren't seen as reliable because they were women. And then you have this gospel story where God is, is, come, comes in the flesh and he, he's redeeming all things. And who are the people that he reveals God's self to? These women. You'd never do it. See, if we were planning something, as a church, as, I, I get together with church leaders. We, we, we do projects sometimes together. We, we, we strategize. We want to be effective. Pastors are like type A people for the most part. I'm not. I'm not that guy. I'm a, whatever. But pastors get after it. They are type A people. They want to win. They want to be successful. They want to grow. They want their ministries, their programs to be amazing and, and have tons of people come around them, right? So I can tell you, pastors would never do this. Church leaders would never do this. If we're like, this gospel message is the most important thing to the entire world in human history. Now, we believe that, I'm just pretending that most pastors believe that women are equal with men. That's not the case. But let's just pretend for fun. Now, we believe that women, we need to liberate women, and we need to bring women up to the, to the equal status with men. We know that's the created order, the imago Dei, praise Jesus. It's the truth. Every, it, it really is. And, but... You see, if we, if we tell mainly women about this, it's just not the best strategic plan, right? Like, let's, let's figure out other ways to, to elevate and honor women and to, let's, let's, let's do that another time. Let's, let's we'll, we'll do that. That's on the agenda, but this gospel story is the most important thing. We can't take the risk of telling a bunch of women about the story because they're going to be dismissed. No one's going to believe them. It's bad planning. It's not efficient. It's not going to be a successful strategy. And so we, I promise you, we pastors, church leaders would be like, we'll take care of the woman thing another time. This is the gospel. Now, the ironic thing is that that's not what God does. See, God, God's strategy isn't almost ever about efficiency, friends. Think about the way God works in human history. God is anything but efficient. See, it seems like God has this really clear agenda. And there's a way that God wants to bring about redemption and renewal and new creation to the world. And God is committed to doing it the right way. And so in a way that you would never expect it, Jesus, God incarnate, shows up and he reveals himself as his true self 75% of the time to women, to this marginalized community who were forgotten, ostracized, left behind, seen as less than human. And this, I, I hope, friends, I hope this makes us say, hallelujah. See, because we serve a God who's out to level the playing field, who's out to, to his, this gospel, it's not about efficiency, it's about justice and liberation for all humans. And the people that God wants to bring this message to first and foremost are the marginalized. The people that God wants to bring this gospel message to first and foremost are the insignificant ones in their culture. The people that God wants to bring this gospel message to first and foremost, and he doesn't care if it's bad strategy, he doesn't care if it's not efficient, God cares about restoring and redeeming human beings, especially the marginalized. I would think that when God comes to bring God's, God's word to humanity, he would call a conference of people like me. Pastors, and probably I would get left behind. Our church is too small. You get the important pastors in the room, and you tell them, hey, guys, this is the truth. Here's, here's my plan. Let's execute it. God leaves the important people behind and goes to the forgotten ones on the edges and the fringes of society and says, 
this is who I am. Now I want you to bring that word. We get slammed regularly for having female elders, pastors. And I want to say, praise Jesus. Go ahead and slam us. Go ahead and trash us because Jesus is all about having men and women serve side by side, bringing the gospel. It was that way from the beginning, and it's that way now, and I don't care what anyone has to say about it. All right. Now, we get to the punchline. What time is it? 11.15. Good grief. You got like seven more minutes in you? I was going to say five, but I want to be honest with you. All right. Verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come, come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now that word, deeply moved in spirit and troubled, they've, the NIV has started to do a better job about trying to communicate that word. In most, for, in most places, in most translations, it said Jesus was moved. And all biblical scholars, all Greek scholars say that, that is a terrible translation of that word. Jesus was moved. We're all moved when somebody dies. But this word that John uses here when he says moved, it's not just like a, I'm emotionally moved like most of us are when somebody dies. This word connotes strong, like actual anger. Anger in such a way that like a person is frustrated and angry and might physically lash out. That's the word that you would use here when it, when it says that Jesus was moved. Jesus is angry. Jesus is mad. Why is Jesus mad? Why is Jesus angry? Why did Jesus maybe even physically lash out? Why? Because Mary and people that he loved are grieving the loss of this Lazarus. See, this is the beauty of the incarnation, and you miss it if you're not looking, friends. We don't serve a God who lives in some ivory tower far removed from our everyday lives, who's got this godly perspective and says, ah, everyone dies, but I've come so that you can have life. So good news, cut the, cut the morning, you don't have to cry anymore, it's all good at the end, don't worry about it. That would make sense. As a matter of fact, Christians do that. Like, Christians sometimes are the worst people to talk to when somebody dies. You give them a Bible verse and a pat on the back and you keep on moving. But the God incarnate comes who has this eternal perspective and he's still so deeply moved. He weeps with the family and he's angry. This is the incarnation, friends. Jesus shows us, Jesus reveals in the incarnation that we don't have a God who's far removed unmoved by our emotions and our grief and our sorrow and our longings and our struggle and all the stuff inside of you, we have a God who's right there with us in the incarnation and who is grieved and moved with us. God cares about the way your inner, inner workings and the, your fears and your longings and your, the, the stuff that keeps you up at night. Jesus is up at night with you. And then we find Jesus goes from tears into resurrection. Jesus does something about it. And this is where we come to this conversation with Martha. Jesus raises Lazarus. We all know this. But what Jesus says here is the kicker. This is in verse 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will will live even though they die. Jesus said here, I presently am the resurrection and the life. Now, two, three weeks ago when Ian preached on John 10, he said something really subtly that I don't know if any of you caught if you're here listening. He was talking through Jesus as the good shepherd and the the sheep come into the sheep pen, this place of safety. They go in through the door and Ian said this really subtly dropped it in, but I was listening and he said, just so you know, Jesus wasn't talking about heaven and hell here, right? Jesus wasn't talking about heaven and hell. And then he kept going. And we probably forgot to notice. But he was right. 
Jesus, when he's, when he's talking about they come in to my sheep pen, they have life, he's not talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about this life right here. What we find in the Gospel of John over and over and over again is this eternal life that Jesus comes to bring, this resurrection life, this abundant life. Jesus in that same chapter said, I have come so that they might have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly, right? This this resurrection, abundant, eternal life that John wants to tell us about over and over again, the scholars will tell you it's not primarily oriented towards the end. It's not primarily this eternal life that Jesus talks about, that Jesus brings, that he can't. John is always talking about how Jesus is the light and the life. And when Jesus, John is talking about Jesus the life, he's not talking about this, this reality that you when you say yes to Jesus, now you don't have to worry about death because you're going to live forever with him. That's, that's part of it. But it's not primarily what John is talking about. John, over and over again, is trying to get us to, to realize that Jesus came to give us life right here and right now. See, what would, if we, most of us Christians read texts like this and we treat the whole of Christianity like a get-out-of-jail-free card. And we, we, we say, yes, okay, great, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We can say this at funerals. Like I said, I do this all the time. I say every funeral I go to, I'm just about saying this, saying, quoting this verse. But what we do with verses like this is we say, okay, yes. Yes and amen, Jesus, I receive you into my heart, and now we can fast forward to when I'm dead. It's why we don't care about the earth. It's why we don't care about human, like, the marginalized people and conditions where people are living in and oppression and injustice because we just think if I just say yes to Jesus, all we have to worry, all, all that I'm worried about is my death and getting to heaven. Now that's all taken care of, so now I can do whatever I want. Doesn't matter. The rest doesn't matter. We just have fire insurance for the end. That's how we treat these verses. And Jesus, John is telling us here when Jesus says, Jesus doesn't say, I am going to be the resurrection and the life. He says, right now, right here, girl, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? In John 10, just, just right before this, he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. And so here's the punchline, friends. This resurrection life, yes, praise God that we get to hope in the resurrection when our friends and family die. Praise God. It means so much, and you'll never know how much it means until you lose someone. But Jesus came to bring this abundant resurrection life for you guys, friends, for today. And then tomorrow when you go to work and, or you go to class and things feel just like boring. Your life, my life is boring. How many times have you had that thought? I'm sick of the rat race. That resurrection, abundant life, John is trying to tell us, is available to you right in the middle of your mundane, kind of boring, I'm thinking about a job change, I'm thinking about a, a change in my major or minor because I'm just a little bit bored. Jesus, in that resurrection life that he came to bring us, his life is available to us right now. I, I was having a conversation with, a, with another pastor on the East Coast. He's a hilarious dude and he's brilliant. And he said, I've, I think that my job as a pastor is this. It's to turn your attention to the divine life that is already in you and around you and active. It's just my job to point out that act, divine activity in your life and to get you to come into communion with it. Did, did you get this? It's not to create something that isn't already happening. It's to say the divine is, is all around you, Marianne. Like, you, 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 there's moments where you're thinking about all sorts of things except for God and the life that is in you, but it's there. You'll never not be full of the divine. And my job is to just tell you, just so you know, when you're at the gym and you're checking in people on just a normal Monday morning, the divine life is right there in and with you. When you're on that, and when you're on your commute and you're stuck in rush hour traffic, I want to let you know the divine life is right there with you, right there by your side, in and among you. This resurrection life that Jesus has to bring doesn't start when we die, friends. It starts today. It starts today. Hey, Crystal. And this is not only the job of pastors, I think, but this is the Christian vocation is coming alive to, to the reality that my life is 
far more profound and miraculous than I knew it was. See, because the divine life is right there, act, living and breathing and moving and doing the divine thing, doing God's thing right in the middle of my life. And now when I come alive to that, first of all, my life gets so much more meaningful than I've ever hoped. There's no job that could, could do that to me. There's no spouse that could do that for me. There's no family that could do that for me. There's no income level that could do that for me. See, my life is full of the divine life as much right now when I'm in, whether I'm in poverty or I'm wealthy, it doesn't matter. That's, that's everything right there. But then when I come alive to that, my job as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, not just a pastor, your job as a follower of Jesus <laughs> is to recognize the divine activity in everybody else around you and just point it out. And just say this, just come alive to it. There's nothing that you have to, there's no on switch. See, God's already there. Now just come alive to it. This is our Christian vocation, friends. This is the pleasure that we get to do, bringing awareness to the life of the divine that's everywhere always. That's a fun time. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Let's stand and pray before we sing one more song. That was more than seven minutes. Thank you for embellishing me. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I have come that they might have life and they might have it to the full, abundantly. Jesus, I'll just say this over and over again until the day I die. Would you come alive? Would you, would you make me more aware, Holy Spirit, of the presence of the life of Christ within me? Holy Spirit, would you, would you open my eyes and ears and heart to this divine activity that surrounds me and is everywhere all around me, inside me, calling me, speaking to me? Would you, would you help me recognize the divine life in all the people around me? Would you help me not to profane your divine work and activity and presence in the people that drive me nuts and I want to put them in a box and I want to, I want to ridicule them? And I want to judge them, and I want to stay away from them, and I don't want them in, near my life. Would you let this reality sink in, Jesus, that this resurrection life is never more available to us than it is right now, right here. It's never more present to us than it is right now and right here. Would you let that shape us and transform us? I want to believe more today in that life than I did yesterday. I want to live in that life more tomorrow than I do today. I want to be moved by it. I want to be shaped by it. I want to be enamored with it. So remind us, Holy Spirit. Remind us, remind us, remind us, remind us. I am the resurrection and the life. And I'm right here. And right now, we say, yes, Jesus. And so we worship you. One more time, what, how else can we respond to this gospel of Christ than just raising our hands in worship and saying, you are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. Who else can we follow? Where else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. So let's worship one more time.